Our scripture passage for today is in John as well, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we do have some Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. I encourage you to turn to John chapter 13. Listen then, church, to the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you this morning for your word. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has come for us and died in our stead. Lord, we gather in his name, we approach your throne in his name in confidence, knowing that you listen to all those who approach you in faith in Jesus Christ. We ask for the sake of our body, Lord, for this week, that you would provide all the necessary provisions for our membership, for our congregation. We pray for those who are looking for a job that you would provide. For those who are looking for housing, Lord, we ask for your provision there as well. We pray for those who are perhaps home at sick today, sick at home today. Lord, we pray that you would heal them and that you would teach them through various trials even. We ask, Lord, for ourselves, that you would teach us contentment in all things, that you would teach us by your spirit how to give thanks to you in all things, Lord. And grow us up in Christ, we ask, for your sake and for your glory. Now, as we turn to your word, God, we pray that you would open our hearts and ears to it. 
by your spirit, we ask that you would change us with this word, that we would go away not only having heard, but having understood, and then obeying in faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the features of John's gospel that has drawn so many to cherish this gospel is the way in which John gives us an insider view of the final hours of our Lord. You know, we talked about this a long time ago, but I should probably remind you that the writer of the gospel, John himself, is the beloved disciple. He was there. He was at this Last Supper with Jesus. And so he gives us the inside take. He gives us the inside view and specifically what is so sweet about the John's gospel is that you, you, as you come to the end, you get this intimate teaching and instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples, including his prayer for them in John 17, something that you don't see in the other gospels. Uh, John records a lot here in chapters 13 through 17 that aren't recorded for us in the other gospels. And in those chapters, John relates to us some of the most precious words that Jesus speaks to his disciples. You know, knowing that his time of death had come, knowing that he was soon, as John says, going to be going back to his heavenly father. Jesus, think about this, how he uses his time, his time at the end. He doesn't use it. He doesn't say, well, I've got about another day and a half left. I'm going to go out and I'm just going to heal as many people as I can. Or I'm going to teach to the biggest crowds that I can possibly conjure up. Actually, he doesn't do any of those things. He spends his time with his disciples, those last hours with his disciples, so that he will have a time of intimacy with them, a time to instruct them, a time to just be with them, a time to be with the ones that he, he was closest to, the ones that he had chosen to be his representatives, the ones that he would send out after his death and resurrection to spread the gospel message. So we begin chapter 13 and we come to the final hours of Christ's earthly ministry and and the scene in John 13 opens up with Jesus sharing this meal with his disciples. And when we compare this event with the other gospels, it seems most likely that this meal that they shared here was the Passover meal or what has been called the Last Supper. But John tells us of something that happens during this supper that none of the other synoptic gospels record for us. At some point in this meal, Jesus gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer garment and he grabs the servant's towel. He grabs the rag of the servant and he washes his disciples' feet. A job, as we will see, that was both filthy and humbling, to say the least. And yet our our Lord does this in love and with a purpose that goes beyond the practical result of them just having clean feet for their meal. Now, the disciples may not have understood at that time what it meant for Jesus to do this, but as he said in verse 17 afterward, they would would come to understand it, and that tells us that there's more to this action of Christ than what might meet the eye, so to speak. So we could ask, what is the meaning of this all? What is the meaning of Jesus doing this? What is Jesus showing his disciples when he washes their feet, and why does he do this? What is this all about? Well, you might be surprised to hear that the answer comes in three parts. I don't know how that always happens, but it does. There's, just all the, there's always three answers. First, it was a display of his love. And then second, a symbol of his work to cleanse his, his own from their sin, to cleanse his disciples of their sin. And third, it was an example for them to follow. So look at verse one. First, a display of love. 
John says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he says, he loved them to the end. Now John frames that evening with Jesus, that special uh, dinner with Jesus, by telling us that Jesus knew the time of his death had come and that he loved his own to the very end, or another way that could be translated, he loved them to the fullest extent. So we begin with this, that when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it was an act of love. You know, he didn't begrudgingly pick up the towel and say, all right, fine, if nobody else is going to do the dirty work, then I guess I'll do it. Not at all. John, John is saying to us at the very beginning, when he frames this story, when he begins the story, he's saying, he loved us. Our Lord, he loved us. And he acted in love to us, towards us, even to the very end when he laid down his life for us. And even in those last moments, those last days that he spent with us, he showed us his love for us by willingly washing our feet. You know, and the whole foot washing thing is easily lost on us because we wash our hands before meals, but we don't, you know, you don't go to somebody's house and say, well, can I use your tub real quick to wash my feet before supper? We just take off our shoes, right? So this is a little strange. It's a little odd to us, but we don't need a long history lesson. You don't, you don't have to be an expert to understand this, right? It's pretty simple to get uh, why people did this and what sort of job it was. So they didn't have paved streets. You know, they, they walked around on dirt all day. And they didn't have the latest, greatest shoes that we have. Uh, they wore sandals. And that meant when it was dry, guess what happened? Your feet just got coated with the dust from, from the path and from the road that you walked on. When it was wet, what, what, what did that mean? Well, it meant that your feet were coated in mud. And besides the dirt and the mud, you know, not to get too specific, but there were a lot of animals that walked around like camels and sheep and stuff. And they walked on the, a lot of the same roads that people walked on. So mud wasn't the only thing that you were stepping in when you went outside. And then you came back in with dirty feet. So what was customary at the time was for uh, houses to have basins, basins of water and, and towels, or we might think of it as a rag for people to use to wash their feet, and maybe a towel to dry their feet. So like we might wash up our hands before dinner, they would wash up their feet. And at a formal dinner like this one, they didn't sit at a table in chairs like we do. They had shorter tables and their feet, they would kind of lounge. We've talked about this before in John. They would lounge around the table and their feet would, their feet would be kind of up and, and out from the table. But in any case, they weren't down underneath the table, hidden away. And so that gave all the more reason when you had a dinner like this that you would wash your feet before the meal. Now, washing your own feet was one thing. No, it wasn't desirable to wash your own feet, but it wasn't anything like washing someone else's feet. You know, to wash someone else's feet was seen as a job that was so degrading it was only fit for the lowliest of slave at that time, slaves at that time. And there was a dispute over who really should be made to wash feet. Certainly the lowest slave, the Gentile slave, maybe we could have wash um, our feet, but not a Jewish slave. And so there was, there was this debate over that, but pretty much everyone believed that it was a dirty job and most servants shouldn't be made to do it. But apparently, you know, Jesus and his disciples had rented this room and though they had this really nice room, it didn't come 
with that kind of slave. It didn't come with a foot washer. And uh, so that meant that either the disciples were gonna have to wash their own feet, or someone would willingly volunteer to do this dirty job, the job of a slave. Now, John doesn't tell us, I would love to know a little bit more, but this is the case oftentimes. John tells us what he tells us, and we get what we get, right? He doesn't tell us what happened before this. You know, one of my questions as I was reading and studying this passage this week is, why did they get this far, and didn't, why hadn't the disciples just washed their own feet by this point? You know, perhaps it was um, uh, a matter of uh, everyone holding out, hoping somebody would volunteer to do the dirty job. Perhaps it was something that uh, we might call today a little bit of self-respect after all, right? You know, um, maybe somebody else will do this. This is below me. So what happens is during the meal, at some point, maybe it was uh, during the first part of the meal when they first began, John tells us that Jesus is the one that got up and took this dirty job upon himself. He did the job that no one else wanted to do. Look at verse two, during supper, when the disciple, or sorry, disciple, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, what was interesting to me as I was studying this passage and meditating on it this last week was the amount of times that John speaks of what Jesus knew. Did you catch that when I read it at the beginning? John talks a lot about what Jesus knew in this story. Look at verse 1. Now, if if you have a a Bible in your lap, just look down and follow with me, and we're going to go through some of these verses. Look at verse 1. John tells us, Jesus knew his hour had come, and it was time for him to to depart. Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. In other words, he had all authority and power. He knew in verse 3 that he had come from God. He was going back to the Father. Verse 11, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Verse 18, he knew those whom he had chosen. In other words, it sounds like John wants us to know that Jesus did not wash his disciples' feet in any kind of ignorance or with any naive understanding of what was about to happen. He knew who he was. Jesus knew who he was. He knew why he had come. He knew where he was going. He knew who he was with. And he knew all that was about to transpire, all that was going to happen leading up to his crucifixion. Now think about that for a moment. For one, Jesus knew his own identity. He knew his own authority. He knew his own majesty as the son, as the eternal son from the father. He knew his home was heaven, that he was the eternal son of, the, of, the, of God the father. And and knowing this, he still stooped down and he took the role of a slave washing their feet. Knowing his place, his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, he gets up from this table and he washes his disciples' feet. And furthermore, he knew that his own death was around the corner. He knew that every one of these stinking guys would fail to stay awake in Gethsemane and just pray with him. Just pray with me. The hour of my death is at hand. Just pray with me. And not one of them could stay awake. He knew that was going to happen. He knew that soon they would all scatter and soon they would all forsake him. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. Three times. And knowing all these things, 
Knowing all of these things, our Lord was not deterred in his love for his disciples. Sitting at this table with them, he knows how feeble their love is for him. He knows how little they understand. He knows how foolish and prideful they are, but none of it diminishes his love for them. And his sovereign, gracious, abounding love for those whom he will soon give his life, he picks up the servant's rag and he fills the basin of water and he gets to work cleaning the filthy feet of undeserving but beloved disciples. And all who belong to Jesus can take heart at this, can't we? All who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, for life everlasting, for everlasting we can see in this story, not only Jesus' love for these men, but his love for us. Why? Well, because like them, we have our shortcomings, right? Like them, we have our struggles. Like them, we have our foolish pride. And like with his disciples, Christ's love for us is not diminished, nor his kind intentions toward us altered in any way. He knows all there is to know about us, just like he did with his disciples. And he demonstrates his love for us still. As John says, he loved them to the fullest, fullest in spite of their unloveliness, we could say. And he does the same with us. He does the same with his disciples today. So first then, Jesus washes his disciples' feet as a display, an expression of his love for them. Why does he do it? Because he loves them. The boneheads, the idiots, the fools, he loves them. And he didn't just do it to teach them a lesson as if he was frustrated at them because no one else volunteered. And so he gets to this point where he says, fine, like the exasperated mother, fine, fine, you don't want to clean your own room, I'll do it, and I hope you're happy that I'm doing it. I'm going to teach you a lesson? No, he doesn't do it like that. He does it because he loves them and because he wants to show them what love does. And indeed, his love meant more than just a physical washing of their feet, didn't it? This is what they failed to understand at the time. This foot washing, it was an expression of his love, but it was also symbolic. It was also a symbol of what Jesus was going to do by way of the cross. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, well, sure, I don't understand, but listen, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, presumably, the other disciples just watched in amazement as Jesus got to them and washed their feet. They just kept their mouths shut. You know, sometimes I wonder if John and Peter had conversations after Peter read John's gospel. Maybe, maybe Peter was dead by that point, but I wonder if Peter would have had a little bit of a gripe with John. Dude, why do you got to throw me under the bus, man? You always, you always have me in there putting my foot in my mouth. Why do you have to include that? John's probably like, well, Peter, because you always did that and nobody else quite did it like you did, so I don't know what to tell you. But Jesus goes around all the disciples and he comes to good old Peter. Peter just can't take it. He does what he often does. He just blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind. My feet, Lord? Yeah, right. You washing my feet? Not if I have anything to say about it. 
And, and Peter's so emphatic, it's hard to, to imagine him changing his mind on this thing. No way, Jose, you're not washing my feet. But he does change his mind. And he does change his mind because of what Jesus says. Jesus says, Peter, if, you, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, no share in my inheritance. No participation in my kingdom. No possession of my life. And this is our first clue that what Jesus meant by washing his disciples' feet certainly goes beyond just giving, a phys- giving his disciples a physical cleaning, physically cleaning their feet. They didn't understand then, but they would afterwards. Why? Because this act of Christ was symbolic of what he had come to do for his disciples and for all who would believe on him because of their testimony. To cleanse his people of their sin by going to the cross, by dying in their stead. And this is why he says what he does to Peter. Because by not allowing Jesus to wash his feet, Peter is essentially saying, I don't need you to wash me, Savior. I can do that for myself. Jesus' response was, if you're going to participate in my kingdom, Peter, if you're going to have my inheritance, then you have to let me do this. Why? Because the true washing that Peter needed, the true washing that you and I needed, could not be done by ourselves. It could only be done by Christ. It could only be done by his atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. You see, this whole story, actually, in John 13, Jesus getting up from the table and washing his disciples' feet and then sitting back down at the table. This humble act of the Lord, you see, was a picture from, listen closely, from start to finish of the work of Christ for the sake of his people. The whole thing is a picture of the work of Christ from start to finish for the sake of his people, for their salvation. Listen carefully. First, he left his place. And then what did he do? He took on the role of a servant. And then what did he do? He washed his beloved clean. And when he had done that, when he had finished his work, what did he do? He resumed his place at the table. Listen closely to verse 12. John says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? After he stoops down to wash their feet, when the job is done, John tells us that he puts on his outer garment again and he resumes his place. And I don't think that was by accident that John tells it this way. It was as if John wanted us to connect verse 3 and verse 12. In verse 3, we're told that he had come, the Son had, Jesus had come from the Father. And he would soon go back to his place with the Father. But before he resumed his place, he stooped down to serve his own. He took the form of a servant to cleanse his people of their guilty stains, washing away their sins with his precious blood poured out on the cross. And when that was accomplished, he would resume his true place in heaven at the Father's right hand. And only then would his disciples come to understand what the foot washing really meant. Understanding then what Jesus meant by by this washing to foreshadow his saving work on the cross for the sake of his people, we can learn two lessons from his interaction with Peter. Two lessons we learn from his interaction with Peter then. First, 
that in order to take part in Christ's kingdom, we must be washed by, by, by the blood of the Lamb. We must be washed by Jesus Christ himself. We must be washed by him. In other words, we must accept that we need to be cleansed of our guilt and our sin, that we cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot atone for ourselves. Now, it may have been embarrassing to Peter to have Jesus wash his feet. Why? Well, because it meant that Jesus had to deal with the part of him that was, was most filthy and gross, his feet. He had been walking on the streets all day. There was mud, muck, and dirt, and, and probably more than that on them, right? And in a way, the cross is the same, if you think about it. The message of the cross is that Jesus took upon himself the sins of men, he, he who knew no sin, Scripture teaches us, became our representative and bore our sin on the cross. In other words, he dealt with the truly filthiest part of us. He, he dealt with what was truly the filthiest part of us. And so to believe on him is actually to say, that is how filthy I was. To look at the cross and be able to say, that is how filthy I was. That's how darkened my heart is. I was so dirty before God. My heart was so darkened by selfishness. My pride so swollen. My rebellion so great that I needed the very Son of God, the eternal Son of God, to take on flesh, to humble himself and take the role of a servant and to die in my place for my stead. I needed his blood to be poured out for me. I needed him to bleed on the cross for me. Nothing else could take care of my guilt. Nothing else could wash away my stains. And so my only hope is Christ and Christ crucified. And that's my only boast. Now, if you can't say that, then the word of Christ to you today is, if I don't wash you, listen carefully, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Now listen, church, this is why we sing songs like nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or what? Or I die. What can wash away my sins? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And there is a fountain that is filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. What happens? They lose all their guilty stains. So Jesus' action here, his words to Peter teach us that it is only by the work of Christ that we can be made clean before God and become partakers of Christ's kingdom and can sit at his table in fellowship with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, second, the second thing we learn from his interaction with Peter is this, that Christ's work is sufficient for our complete cleansing before our God. His work is sufficient for our complete cleansing before God. After Jesus said to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, Peter says, he responds by saying, then wash my hands and my head too, Lord. And what does Jesus say? Well, he says, Peter, the one who has bathed only needs his feet washed and he is completely clean. Now, we shouldn't complicate what Jesus is saying to Peter here. Essentially, he's saying, Peter, what I have done is sufficient for your cleansing. 
you can trust that I know what I'm doing. And I know what I've done for you. And I'm telling you, it's sufficient. You're clean. Now, again, the truth that Christ is pointing to goes beyond the physical cleansing of Peter's feet, doesn't it? He's referring to the sufficiency of his work to cleanse his people. As Hebrews chapter 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So for the Christian today, we can be assured that all that Christ has done for us is sufficient for our salvation, for the possession, for our possession of an eternal inheritance in Christ. He knows how to fit his people for heaven, in other words. And all that he needed to do while he was on this earth to accomplish the salvation of his people, the cleansing of his people, he did. There was nothing that was left out. Now, therefore, we can take heart when we hear the words of our Lord to Peter, can't we? We can say, I have been washed. If we believe in Christ, we can say, I have been washed by my Savior. And if he has washed me, and if he has declared me clean before God, then I am clean indeed. So Christ washes his, his disciples' feet as a display of his love, as a symbol of his cleansing work, and finally, as an example for them to follow. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Luke tells us in his gospel that at some point during the Last Supper, the disciples were actually arguing amongst themselves over which of them ought to be regarded or thought of as, or, or recognized as the greatest. Perhaps a dispute had started over who would sit where at the table. Maybe who would be seated next to Jesus. And Jesus says to them in Luke twenty two twenty five, he says, the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the, 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 let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves." And here's the point to all these texts. If Jesus, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Son of God, took the role of a servant, how much more ought his disciples to do the same? After he washed his disciples' feet, he said to them, I've given you an example to follow. For is the servant greater than the master? And the answer is no, the servant is not greater than the master. Then the servant, and, and then the, the implication is this, then the servant must not refuse to do what the master has done. If that's the case, then the servant must not refuse to stoop as the master stoops. No servant can say, no servant of Jesus Christ can say, that work of service is below me. That's below my pay grade. That's below my dignity. Why? Because their Lord... Their Lord and Savior came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So, in other words, humble service is the way of Christ's kingdom. 
As the king of kings, he did the humblest work of service for the sake of his people. And as he did that, he calls all, he called all who belong to him to follow in his footsteps. I'm giving you an example. You are my servant and I'm your master. And if as your master I do this, how much more so ought you? So as we close then today, I want to encourage you to consider your own attitude toward the humble service that Jesus calls you to. Now, and specifically, you might ask some of these questions. You might ask, am I eager to serve the body of Christ no matter how menial the task, how thankless it is, or how difficult it is? Or do I, I feel entitled to be served by others? When I came into this church, I was expecting to be served, and I'm waiting for that to happen. Do I see the job of cleaning the church, those of you who are in community groups, cleaning the church every six weeks or so a waste of my time? Or am I like, listen, we should pay somebody to do this, and why am I being made to do it? It doesn't make sense. This isn't a good use of my time. I'm, be- I'm better than vacuuming these, this carpet here. And by the way, some of you parents, you bring the most messy snacks for your kids. And there's crumbs everywhere. I'm the pastor after all. Should I have to clean that up? I'm a deacon. I'm an elder. I'm a dignified man. (laughs) Whatever it is. Do I consider the work of helping a nursery beneath me? It is sometimes thankless, isn't it? Do you like dealing with other people's kids? What's your heart when you go and you serve up there? Oh, goodness gracious. Guess I'll do it to be like Jesus. Am I eager to bless individual members with a meal when we have a meal sign up? Do I look at that and say, hey, there's a chance to serve. I get to bless someone. Or help them in some other way, maybe by babysitting their kids? What is your attitude towards these things? Now, I have to say, I want to tell you something. I think this will be encouraging to you. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, just like some practical ways this might work out in our church. I've got to say that there were just so many things, so many people that came to my mind where I'm seeing this happen. Like so many ways. I could spend the next 10 minutes listing names and telling you guys stories about (laughs) all of you know, so many of you know, of ways this is working out in our church, ways that I see humble service actually happening in our church. So many different ways, so many different people. And there's a part of me that wants to say, I was thinking, what do I do in this part of my sermon? Do I say thank you? I don't know. I think the more appropriate response is to say, praise God. Praise God. Praise God that he has done that work in your hearts. Praise God. What great evidence of hearts that have been transformed by his grace and are being conformed to his image. There's so much evidence of that happening in our church. And what is, who gets all the glory for it? Who gets the glory? The triune God of creation and salvation. There's evidence of his work that is happening amongst us. He's working in your heart. Where does that, where does that willingness, when you, 
When you do that menial task, or you serve that person in a way that costs you, where does a heart to do that come from? Do you think you conjured that up in your heart? That was the work of the Holy Spirit. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. So I want to end with this. Perhaps if, if someone were to ask me, Chuck, I want to study John 13, and can you just give me a, a, a commentary that I could go to that would summarize this passage well? I would say the best commentary that you can find on John 13 is Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. So, so listen. Paul says, inspired by the Spirit to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambi ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is our calling, to follow our Savior in that way. Let's pray. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, and amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we are indeed those who have not cleansed ourselves before you, have not washed ourselves up to sit at your table, but those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, those who wear robes that are white and spotless because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we praise you and thank you this morning for that and ask that you would increase in us the desire to follow after our Savior, that the Spirit of Christ would be manifest among us by many acts of service with hearts of love towards one another and towards you. And this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.